Great. Well, thank you very much, Alex and Sarah, for inviting me. And I am very grateful to you all for coming out on a Friday afternoon. You're much more dedicated than our Princeton crowd, which generally doesn't show up anywhere on a Friday. So I'm impressed that you're here. And I will try to present a con uh, presentation worthy of your time. Unfortunately, as I was saying to Sarah, I don't have many props of pictures or jokes. So, <laughs> This paper is part of a larger project, and so your feedback is very valuable. I'll be doing some more revisions, and so I appreciate your comments. I'm welcome to interruptions for clarification points during the talk, so don't hesitate if something comes up during the talk. Otherwise, we can have more conversation after I finish. Um, but to do this in 30 minutes, I'm probably going to talk fairly quickly. <laughs> All right. My research about form choice in trade disputes is motivated by a larger question that we observe increasing legalization in international affairs, whether it's the establishment of an international criminal court, the observation of European integration being driven forward largely through the ECJ, or, of course, in the area that I'm interested in of trade, where we see the World Trade Organization bringing an increasingly legalized process of dispute settlement that involves 100-page legal briefs being filed at Geneva, a panel sitting and hearing legal argumentation, passing a judgment, an appellate body, and formal legal rulings with an informal set of precedents. This kind of legalization is broadly occurring throughout international affairs, which leads to the question of why are countries using courts to solve their problems. It's not obvious why they would do so, especially for powerful states, because they can often solve their problems without resorting to a third party. The United States can use positive carrots, aid, other issues of leverage to try and encourage countries to follow policies that it wants. It can, of course, use negative sticks as well, whether it's threatening to withdraw benefits or other policies. And some of this leverage is lost when it goes into an international court. International law lacks strong enforcement. It's not as if these courts are backed up by a police force. And litigation itself is costly and time-consuming. So the lawyers are the one interest group that really benefits from this process. I've talked to a lot of the lawyers in this, but I haven't yet thought of um, modeling their own incentives and involvement in creating the institutionalized process. So it is surprising why we see such legalization. And I'd like to look within the area of trade about why countries are choosing to use the court for specific disputes. Now, in looking at the question of forum choice, which is the decision when you have a particular problem, what venue are you going to use to solve it? In looking at this question, I'm addressing a broader literature on international institutions. But the broader literature is generally focused on why countries establish the institutions, that given a cooperation problem where there are mutual interests, if you can make countries see a longer shadow of the future and link issues, have more transparency, then you can have everyone benefit from cooperation. And this is why we see the establishment of multilateral institutions. We've also seen a large literature on compliance, for why, despite establishing the institution, still countries may decide not to always follow the law. And so there's literature on studying decisions by states not to follow international law. What I'm interested in, though, is the question of enforcement. The decision to take the action to challenge the violation of another country, given that you've already established the legal process. And as I 
the big point is that not all violations are being challenged, that enforcement is hit or miss. Some are challenged and some are not, and the question is why. In the political economy literature, I'll be addressing the debates about export promotion. And much of our study of political economy looks at why countries protect. So we all know about the farm lobby. I spent a lot of time studying the farm lobby, looking at why it is that the farmers can gain so much influence and protection. But you know, we've read our studies about the move of free trade and the reciprocal trade agreements where countries decide to go towards free trade in a process of making an agreement for reciprocal trade liberalization. And that's driven by export interests. We're willing to open up our import markets, lowering some of those protection barriers that our farmers want, in exchange for gaining access to foreign markets. But there hasn't been as much study of the effort to make sure that you actually gain the market access that was promised at the negotiating table. When states are trying to gain this market access, they have many strategies. They can choose to negotiate. There are many venues to negotiate. Now, with overlapping institutions, you could choose to use a range from multilateral talk shops, like a leaders' summit, the OECD, a regional forum, such as APEC, more formalized bilateral talks, a free trade agreement, or very informal talks among diplomats. And of course, within the multilateral framework, there are meetings of committees, TBT committee, TRIPS committee, Agriculture committee, SPS committee, that are multilateral committees for discussing trade problems. There's an ongoing trade round, all of these different venues for negotiation. There's also adjudication when a country decides to file a legal dispute on a particular trade barrier. So I'll be looking at state strategies when they choose negotiation versus adjudication. Doing this in approach, this approach is allowing me to address the selection bias criticism of institutions research. Um, if you've been reading about institutions, you're quite familiar with the argument that, well, yes, the studies about institutions look nice. Yes, they appear to be effective, but that's because you're only looking where countries have established an institution and are cooperating together. And they're getting the easy cases where countries know that cooperation is going to produce good results and that countries were already ready to make those agreements. So the institution itself is not having an effect. So the selection critique of easy cases go to institutional cooperation. I'm trying to address this at a more micro level, saying given the institution, and now we're looking at the choice of when do you use it or not, I can then try and look at which cases are selected for institutionalized cooperation through using adjudication, or which ones are being settled outside of the institutional framework. And so this will allow me to look at the selection bias critique. And I'll be making the argument that actually selection bias is in the opposite direction from that of the crit critique. Instead of it being easy cases going into institutional forum, it's the hard cases. That politics is pushing very difficult politicized cases into WTO adjudication. So rather than countries sending the easy cases where everyone knew they were ready to change this trade barrier or it was a small stakes issue, actually we're finding very large stakes issues with entrenched groups on both sides that are going to the adjudication forum. If it nonetheless is effective, that's all the more impressive. This is part of a larger project. Since I don't have much time, 
I'll just say that there is a larger project where I'm going to be talking about the role of checks and balances in leading some states because of the democratic institutions and the structure of those democratic institutions to be more aggressive in their enforcement of their export market access rights. So it'll be countries that have strong democracy, within democracies, those with divided government, presidential system, that are more likely to be very litigious in their use of trade adjudication. I'll have con I have cross-national data looking at who files more in the WTO, and I'll be looking at potential disputes similar to the data you're seeing here today about the United States, where I compare some trade disputes that go to the legal forum and others that do not. I'll be comparing case studies, looking at the p process, and overall, my goal is to explain why democracies are more litigious and what explains the pattern over time. The United States, one year, is initiating 40% of all WTO disputes in that year, another year only 5%. And that kind of variation is as much driven by politics as it is by economic interest. The U.S. and Japan represent contrasting cases. The U.S. is the most litigious, Japan the least. Um, and I'll show that this is in part related to differences in their domestic political institutions. But I won't be able to talk about all of that today, um, so let me go ahead with telling you what I am going to tell you today. Interest group politics is what's pushing adjudication. I'll give an illustration from the Kodak Fujifilm dispute, and I will talk about first the causes of form choice, looking at statistical analysis of potential trade disputes, meaning there's a trade problem, it could go to the WTO adjudication, but it doesn't have to, and many don't. I will analyze the role of political contributions as part of a way to test my argument that it's political influence that is selecting some cases into the forum. And then I will show that taking into account the selection process, we can still see adjudication is effective at bringing progress to resolve the trade barrier. So. Some of these disputes are about big stakes issues. You've heard about the Airbus subsidy controversy with billions of dollars at stake for a major industry. Others about very narrow disputes about the quarantine policy for a particular variety of apples. But I will be able to show that there is process towards resolving the trade complaint when it, the process is taken to the WTO adjudication. If there's time, I'll take an extension on Section 301 that wasn't in the paper, but that may have to follow up for Q&A if anyone's interested. Interest group pressure. In the study of political economy, there are many theories about endogenous political economy and the role of interest groups to explain why we observe protection. Because, of course, the economists are coming from the perspective that free trade would be in our optimal interest, and why aren't we always seeing free trade? looking at the role of lobbying politics to create suboptimal outcomes. But lobbying politics is not just by the protectionist industries. Export industries have huge stakes in being able to export to a foreign market. So when a trade partner slaps on an import ban, they're taking away directly the in income of that export industry. And so these firms have a stake, and they do lobby. They are powerful companies, and I'm going to be looking at the role of how they're offering political contributions as one way to gain influence. But when industries are lobbying, they expect a commitment in exchange that they'll gain something to improve their bottom line. In this case, that there will be an effort from the government to promote exports. Now, the reason that export promotion is a little more difficult than providing protection is because the outcome is more difficult to monitor. The government has a credibility problem. When you're a 
an import competing firm, the U.S. shoe industry lobbying for protection, you know if your government passes a quota or not because it's the Congress, they're going to pass it and you can observe it and it's their decision. When you're trying to increase your export access to a foreign trade country, the change in policy depends not on the U.S. Congress but on the foreign government. And so the outcome depends upon a negotiation between two governments. This creates more uncertainty because the industry and their representatives does not have as much information about what is going on in the negotiation itself to know whether the outcome was truly the best possible. There also is uncertainty about the enforcement because you can have a good agreement on paper at the negotiation but not be sure if there will be follow-through on the implementation. Yes? Just a quick clarification. What assumptions, if any, are we making about the preference of governments for exports? So what do governments want as far as export policy is concerned? Is it in their interest to lobby for them or do they have a cost? Is there a cost to lobbying for the government? In terms of negotiation, so is there a cost for the government to negotiate for exports for market access with other countries? Yes. So, th but the government preference is to promote exports, but there is a cost, is, and it varies depending upon the forum. And so, my argument depends upon that differential of a smaller cost to choose a bilateral negotiation and a higher cost for adjudication. And I'll talk. Shortly. The observability problem for the industry then is how hard is this government trying to do what they want to do? Yes, it's the, the uncertainty about government intention. Okay. So the industry doesn't really care how their problem is solved. They just want export access. And they want the government to negotiate to achieve this. And the uncertainty is that the government wants to help all export industries and has a broader set of preferences. Actually, Alex has a very good paper talking about this, about the trade-off between the executive caring about foreign policy relations and not wanting to always be bashing its partners with a really unpopular <laughs> Section 301 unilateral policy. And so that these types of trade-offs might lead to the case where even if overall the executive wants free trade, they might not for this particular industry. And so that particular industry is not sure. Did the government go to the negotiating table, do their best, and the foreign country refused to make any concession? Or did our government go and trade us off for another industry? Did our government go and listen to the State Department and say, oh, well, it's not the right time to be criticizing them? And so it is this uncertainty about whether the executive is going to be a hawk or not. And you do see some of this tension where it's industry and Congress, because I really am sort of Congress is closely affiliated with the industry interests, and the suspicion is that the executive, with their larger constituency base and the foreign policy considerations, might be hawkish on some issues, dovish on others. That's a good point, and the um, key issue is that export subsidies are not a policy that is used. Countries negotiated that away in the GATT. Export subsidies are used under the underhandedly in some cases, such as has been adjudicated, like the foreign sales corporation tax, where they sort of indirectly are giving a tax break for exports. But direct export subsidies are only allowed for agriculture. And generally, in practice, they haven't been used. So Danny Roderick has a paper about this where he asked the question of, you know, 
why, why don't we observe them? I actually didn't answer his question, but generally export subsidies are not a common practice. And so when exporters are asking for help to get better access, it's not saying give us a subsidy. It is rather, take, you know, give us a level playing field. Um, So I'm arguing that there is some concern and suspicion that the government may not have done as much on their industry case as was possible or as the industry wanted. And you do hear comments of this where there are accusations that the administration is not being hawkish enough, and you do see this kind of tension in the back and forth between Congress and the executive and industry statements. Uh, And so... I would say that because of that uncertainty, on average, export industries are going to be less likely to be offering money because they're less certain about gaining an outcome. And they wouldn't know when to punish. So even though they're capable of withdrawing contributions in the next election cycle, the key issue to maintain the promise is that those giving are able to distinguish when someone should be held accountable. And if you're not able to tell when it was a resistant foreign government or your own government not putting enough effort in, that can lead to a problem for sustaining the uh, credible commitment. Let's see, I think I went backwards instead of forwards there. This is where I argue that forum choice can be useful as a way of making a credible signal of commitment, and that the fact is litigation is increasing costs. Now, usually when we study institutions, we talk about how international institutions are lowering transaction costs, and they do in some areas, but not in all areas. There are some costs that increase, and litigation is one of them. It takes time and resources. Your average WTO case is going to cost a million dollars in legal fees alone. You're going to have four or five government officials involved, corporate officials involved, and so this is a sunk cost in the case, and it varies, of course, considerably depending upon the case. There's also risk of harm to diplomatic relations. Nobody likes to be sued. Some take it very personally. China usually freezes talks in other areas and makes a diplomatic protest, and so there is risk of harm to diplomatic relations. Also, you can lose some flexibility by making a public complaint. Um, I should note that I am really focused here on the country that's initiating. I have argued in other places about how legal framing can help promote compromise in the respondent state, that raising the audience costs in the respondent state by saying this is international violation of rules can increase their compromise. Um, So I think I need to reword the sentence. What I really mean here is that for the initiating state, if you're in a bilateral talk, you can make any side payment you want, and you can decide when the concession meets your particular needs. And if you make it a public complaint, then even if you've reached some side payment that might be in the executive's interest, you sort of, it's more difficult to back down. So the argument that there is more risk when you make a litigation complaint. These costs are useful because then filing a complaint signals that the issue is receiving government priority. That's also because there is an opportunity cost, given that there are some costs to filing WTO cases. Governments don't go out filing 20 a year. Even the United States and the European Union, who file the most complaints, at most are filing seven cases a year. And yet we have hundreds of export industries with complaints about problems. And so, again, as a signal of priority, the opportunity cost that you chose one case over another is important for the industry. 
and shows the industry and the foreign trade partner the commitment to this case. So I would argue that where there is strong interest group pressure is where the government will find it the most worthwhile to invest in the spending the high costs to use litigation as a way to signal their commitment. And these will be the cases that are going to arise for WTO adjudication. One of the examples that helps to illustrate this argument is the Kodak Fujifilm dispute. It's been referenced to me by many people when I ask questions about does politics influence the decision process about filing a WTO dispute. It is a complaint by the United States government that was issued against Japan for distribution measures in the photographic film market. <laughs> so Kodak was having declining market sales and wanted to gain an increased market share in Japan, and they'd had a fairly constant 7% market share, which was smaller than their market share in Europe. And as is the typical strategy, the approach was, if we can sell this much in the world and we can't sell it in Japan, it's because there's a trade barrier, and there were distribution measures that were causing an obstacle. Now, the problem is distribution policy, things like connections, where Fujifilm had good connections with the retailers who sell the film so that the retail shops were more likely to sell Fuji than Kodak. Those kinds of policies are really related to competition policy, and competition policy is one on the margins of WTO law. And so when Kodak came with their problem about access to the Japanese market, USDR officials first say, well, this is competition policy. Maybe you should try something at the Japan Fair Trade Commission. Kodak says, oh, come on, we won't get anything there. So they file Section 301, which is a provision in U.S. trade law that institutionally mandates that the U.S. trade representative take action in response to an industry complaint. So now the USTR has a year in which they have to negotiate, and they do. Bilateral negotiations go nowhere. The Japanese government insists this is a private matter. It's not government policy. Nothing is achieved, and Kodak says you must do more. Kodak, based in New York, has friends in powerful places. The New York congressional delegation is calling up USTR, saying, you must do more. USTR knows they have a weak legal case. They still file the WTO dispute. Why? Because it shows they are taking the strongest action that was possible to try and gain market access. Now, they lost the ruling. Not many were surprised. And nothing changed in the policy. What is very interesting, though, is that even after two years of litigation that cost both sides quite a bit of money, even though at the beginning Kodak had been calling for unilateral retaliation, at the end, after losing the ruling, people criticized the ruling, no one called for unilateral retaliation, and the dispute ended there. And so I would argue this helps to illustrate both the political selection of cases as well as the possibility that the process itself is diffusing some of that political pressure, that the United States government is able to show we have gone to the mat, we've done what we can, and that this helped to diffuse the pressure that might otherwise have led to a trade war and excessive retaliation for an issue that was not necessarily <laughs> worth um, invoking a trade war. So the dispute is an interesting case of politicized selection and no policy change unless you think of it in terms of avoiding a trade war as a good outcome. <laughs> but that's just one case, and it's um, better to look at a broad set of trade barriers, and so that's what I want to do next. Looking at trade barrier data as a way to try and get around the problem of institutional theories that only look at cases in the institutional setting. 
So what I have done is to get a sample of potential disputes. I've gone through the U.S. Trade Representative National Trade Estimate Reports to create a list of complaints that I consider politically relevant trade barriers. The unit of analysis is a foreign trade barrier that harms U.S. export access. <laughs> now, there's anything from, let's see, I'll give you a few examples. Japan bans potatoes for fear of the golden nematode. That was a case that started in 2000. Bilateral negotiations, it's ended, it's still going on as bilateral negotiations. Fire blight, that one went to the WTO. So apples and fire blight, we did take it up to the WTO. And so those would be two parallel trade barriers in this data set, both of which are described in the National Trade Estimate Report. One was negotiated, one went to the WTO. There are other barriers that are simply mentioned in the reports, and there's no reference to government action. And some of the issues are potato nematode. It matters to the potato farmers, but may not shake the U.S. economy. Others really are huge issues. I mean, IPR policy, where governments have said they're losing half a billion annually. Industry has said they're losing half a billion dollars annually. So some of these are very high-stakes issues. Through coding the top nine trade partners, which the nine trade partners I have included in the data cover 75% of our trade, I have 410 trade barriers where I'm able to get two-digit um, industry control variable data. So it's specific to an industry at the level of like steel or textiles or um, automobile. And I will be analyzing this by looking at the role of political influence measured by political contributions and associations. Section 301, there's only a few, but these cases where the institutional mechanism leads to there being high political pressure. So I expect these variables to correspond with more adjudication. I control for standard variables that might explain why some trade partners resist more in some cases than others. Import penetration, employment share, the tariff rate. These, most all of the barriers are non-tariff barrier or um, they're not about the tariff level. So that's why the tariff rate is a control for whether there's already high protection. I also control for the U.S. economic interest, production, employment, exports. And I look at the specific trade barrier in terms of was it an import policy? These are easier legal cases. It's easier to show there was a violation if it's a straightforward import policy than if it's IPR or standards where the law is more vague and has less precedent record. Control for whether it's high distortion, an import ban versus a customs nuisance. And I look at partner fixed effects and the duration of the dispute. Now, since my outcome variable is a three-category evaluation of the choice of strategy to address the trade barrier, either no action or negotiation or WTO adjudication, and I'm looking at the highest level of action that was taken for the dispute. So if it was raised as a WTO adjudication case, it will be coded as WTO adjudication. And these, of course, there's only 35 in the data set. That's the least frequent outcome. Most of the cases are going to be negotiated, 50%. Looking at multinomial logit regression analysis, including the control variables I mentioned, what I'm showing you here are two columns. The first column is the one of interest showing WTO adjudication relative to the base category of a negotiation. Now, negotiation is in any forum, either bilateral or a multilateral committee negotiation. And so this coefficient is just saying that political contributions have a strongly positive and significant effect on the likelihood that a particular trade barrier will be negotiated, will be taken to WTO adjudication 
rather than being negotiated. Also relative to the other column, which is no action. Other variables generally are performing as one would expect. My indicator for Section 301 is, of course, very large and significant. Also, that the trade partner resistance is a factor. So when there's higher import penetration that increases the resistance in the protection industry of your trade partner, that makes it more likely they're going to resist any settlement in the negotiation, hence more likely to have adjudication as the last step measure. All right. Overall, substantively, these are important effects. This is just giving you, if you shift to standard deviation of political contributions, you would see a substantively large tripling of the probability of initiating a WTO dispute. A similar effects if I were to instead use the organization of the industry, number of associations. Section 301 has even larger effects from 0.04 probability of WTO case to 0.52 import penetration. So, I have shown you some evidence about the politicized selection process, that industries that are influential are more likely to see their case go to adjudication. It's not just economic interest. It's not just straightforward import cases. It's also a politicized selection criteria. Yeah. Uh, you said the structure of the data. Yep. The units over there are these just, uh, potential disputes. Yes, a trade barrier that represents a potential the, dispute. The three categories, they're mutually exclusive. That's a good point. Yes, that's a good point, is that um, all cases that are at adjudication have had some prior talk at the negotiation level. And so I'm coding what was the last outcome. So you can assume that an adjudication case had some negotiation beforehand, and yet if it was, it would be coded as adjudication. And the negotiation case may have had a few years where there was no action, and I still will code it as negotiation. So I'm not doing time series analysis. I am looking at a trade barrier as a single unit, and then I control for the duration of whether it was a five-year trade dispute. Um, yeah, the overlap is a good point. Um, so the next question, though, if there's a politicized process, is to then ask how effective. You know, we see why countries are choosing one form over the other, is it more effective? Now I'd like to show that even though we're having a politicized selection criterion, the dispute settlement process is able to bring progress to resolve these disputes that are very high stakes, hard politicized questions. Now to evaluate progress, I'm going to be measuring, using the same national trade estimate report, how does the U.S. government describe the progress towards resolving their complaint? Now, the U.S. government is using these reports both as information to their own industry. The reports are mandated by Congress, so there's showmanship to Congress about how much the USTR is doing. They're also meant to show foreign countries, we still don't like what you're doing. So there are multiple audiences. My key assumption here in evaluating progress is that the USTR is eager to brag about its results across fora, that it's not particularly prone towards saying happy things about WTO results that if they got a good outcome in a bilateral negotiation, they also report, we talked to the government and they completely resolved the barrier. And I, I don't see any reason why they would be prone towards bragging more about the WTO adjudication, but if you have problems with that assumption, we should probably talk about it because I am using the reports to discuss progress. I am able to show for the cases that are very narrow to the four-digit level specification, 114 cases where I can get trade data that would be reasonably close to what is actually the dispute, 
then I can show there is a correlation between my progress measure and a trade in an improvement in the trade flow in the year after the dispute ends. So there's some uh, evidence that there is a real trade result, but it's most important is the policy change. And I will be comparing WTO adjudication relative to negotiation. So it's only the subset where the government did something. It, exactly to your point that all adjudication cases had some negotiation beforehand, here I'm sort of saying let's take the universe of all the cases that have a negotiation, and then if there was escalation to the dispute settlement, do you get a better result or not? Descriptive inference, progress, it's just a dichotomous measure. Was there some progress or not? And it looks like the WTO is bringing somewhat more progress than those that were only negotiated. But actually, that's not a statistically significant difference. I mean, 62% of the WTO cases have progress. 54% of the negotiation cases have progress. And since negotiation is lower cost and quicker, you might end up saying negotiation is a better way to go. Um, so the question is, to evaluate effectiveness, we need to think about are these cases really parallel? I spent the first part of my presentation telling you they're not, that the cases going to the WTO are systematically different. And so the problem is I'm not able to observe the case of the exact same trade barrier that was in the WTO adjudication if it had been pursued differently. Um, USTR doesn't let me tell them to randomly distribute their trade strategy. So instead, I'll use the statistical technique of matching, which is a way to bring observational data closer to comparison of cases that are similar in all but treatment. Basically, it's a way of saying that if you have a case that is an outlier where import penetration is extremely high and there's no relevant comparison group, you may be better taking that out of your data set rather than throwing it in so that you end up with a smaller data set that is more comparing apples to oranges. So this is a statistical technique to reduce model dependence, and I will still be including the variables that were important for forum choice. So the first step is to use matching, three-to-one matching, exact restriction on trade partner. That's just a way of doing fixed effects, where for every trade barrier that's with Japan, I try to find a parallel trade barrier that was not in adjudication. So I'll look for a U.S.-Japan dispute in the agricultural sector that was in adjudication and try to match it with a U.S.-Japan agricultural dispute that did not have adjudication. And like I said, omitting the outliers where there's really no equivalent matched pair. This substantially, I'm able to improve the balance by reducing my data set from uh, 250 to 127. This figure is showing that everything below the line is a variable where I improve the balance, meaning that I am reducing the standardized mean difference between the cases in WTO adjudication and the cases that were negotiated. So I want to have about the same level of exports, about the same level of import penetration, about the same level of political contributions in the treatment group, control group. And this shows that I was able to balance pretty effectively. Now running my regression on the smaller data set after matching shows very effective WTO dispute settlement, that even when I have controlled for the variables that affect selection, even after I've gone through and tried to create a data set that really pairs equivalent cases, we can show that WTO dispute settlement is increasing the likelihood of progress towards resolving the trade dispute. Now, substantively, Dispute settlement, that coefficient translates into a 17% increase in the likelihood of progress <laughs> and is fairly high prediction of, I uh, have fairly good fit to the model predicting progress 77% of the time. 
It's uh, significantly more effective than negotiation, even after taking into account selection. The little extension that was in the paper, not in the paper, and I shouldn't talk about because I'm out of time, is that Section 301 has a perverse effect. So Section 301 is the way that industry can force USCTR to take action. So this is the strongest of political pressure, where they lock them in to take action. And these are the cases that are the most likely to go to the WTO. Because the USTR has zero discretion, often they're taking a case that really shouldn't go, like the Kodak-Fuji dispute. There was a weak legal basis. Or they knew in advance the trade partner had such entrenched opposition, they would never make a reform, the EU hormone beef dispute. Nevertheless, because of industry pressure, Section 301, loss of discretion, they file a dispute. No surprise, they get no result. And so I find there's an interaction term where Section 301 has a negative interaction with the effectiveness of dispute settlement which just shows this political effect at the very extreme can lead to perverse effects. But still, on average, despite the politicized use of dispute settlement, we are seeing it, on average, able to solve these disputes. Which I conclude... I'm controlling for the variables because they affect selection, and so I think of their effect as going into selection, which complicates trying to interpret a direct effect. And so I'm not, I wouldn't want to interpret any of my controls in this regression, and I only interpret the Section 301 because it's interacted with my treatment variable of dispute settlement. And also contributions, even though I like to use the phrase buying litigation in the paper, I'm measuring contributions at the aggregate industry level, not specific enough that I would expect it to really influence an actual dispute. And so this is more likely to reflect the correlation of what these industries are all about, not that giving money is causing the trade partner to be more obstinate. Um, you've been patient for me going over time, so let me get to my conclusion and wrap up. The WTO is effective as a conflict resolution mechanism. It is attracting the disputes with high political stakes and still managing to bring some progress in the worst case if it can't change policy, at least preventing a trade war, allowing governments to convince their export industry that enforcement actions are being taken and keep that contributions flow coming. Overall, the record shows the WTO dispute settlement has been effective and there aren't that many non-compliance cases. This is just data from all WTO members that there have been 369 overall complaints and yet we only see 15 cases of retaliation requests. So overall, we're not seeing that the countries have to resort to retaliation to get compliance. And in the end, I would argue that the adjudication system is working both at the international level as well as in the domestic level as it helps countries to address their relationship with industry and ability to signal commitment to back up industry interests. Thank you very much, and I look forward to questions. Should I turn off mine, Mike? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so first of all, let me say that I really enjoyed reading this paper from the perspective of someone who's interested in bargaining and negotiation within the institutional context, and I think it makes an important contribution uh, to a growing literature of the causes and consequences of institutional creation and selection. 
Um, you, you yourself have said, and we know that institutional choices are not made in a vacuum, and if you believe that states are primarily motivated by cost-benefit calculations, then one has to draw the conclusion that institutional context is enormously important for how states go about negotiating over trade disputes. At its base, this paper presents us with the premise that governments have choices about where they are going to settle their trade disputes and furthermore, that they must be strategic about these choices. Why? Uh, Professor Davis reminds us of the importance of domestic politics and the weight that certain interest groups and constituencies can bring to bear on the conduct of international politics. If leaders are in fact motivated by a desire to remain in office, then they will be responsive to their domestic constituencies, and in this case, those that desire policy change in protectionist governments import policies. Professor Davis uses an original data set coding over 400 trade barriers and instances of progress from the National Trade Estimate reports. So not only does this piece make a theoretical uh, contribution uh, to the literature on institutional selection, but it also contributes to the, our empirical body of knowledge on the settlement of trade disputes. Um, and in, it does so uh, in, in different ways than have been done in the past, which I found to be really interesting and valuable. So uh, now that I put forward my, um, uh, my uh, what I liked about the paper, um, I'll get into to more um, hopefully constructive criticisms. Um, and so uh, I want to discuss three central issues that in the paper and then a smaller methodological question. And the first point is a broader theoretical one about forum shopping. I think the paper is a great way to make a broader contribution to the forum shopping literature. However, I think the concept could use more clarification, specifically in two areas, um, uh, to be more theoretically powerful. You present forum shopping as a choice between negotiation and adjudication, specifically in the WTO. However, I think that um, time horizons and, and sequencing need to be considered because the alternatives that you present as fora are sometimes sequential. Um, for example, you mentioned the Tokyo round and the Uruguay round and uh, APEC negotiations and uh, states didn't necessarily have their choice of all of those uh, fora at one time. So how do sequential fora affect um, forum shopping and how are states and governments supposed to think about uh, how to choose when um, during different negotiation rounds um, where to go to, uh, which venue to, to go to. Um, given the issue of sequence, uh, what specifically did actors have a choice over? In other areas, some fora could be characterized as nested while others are overlapping. Um, to really sharpen what you mean by selecting among multiple fora, it seems you would need to make, you would need to take uh, sequence and time horizons and also the discreteness of the different forum choices or venues into account. So are they uh, nested overlapping? Are they um, completely distinct? Are they choices over more choices over strategy, negotiation versus adjudication, or how, how does this represent forum shopping as we understand it within the literature that Agarwal um, 
Alter and Meunier uh, Bush put forward. Um, secondly, I think on, on forum shopping, uh, more clarification is needed on who or which actors are doing the shopping. And I think this could be a really uh, interesting point about your paper because I really like the, the setup of the interest groups, but uh, we're not, I didn't get a clear picture of how the interest groups really filtered their influence through the government, um, through government action. And here's what I mean. For example, in Alter and Meunier's account of the banana trade disputes, they argue that it's the banana importers themselves that are doing the, the cho choosing of the venues. Where in your account, and also Bush um, mentions this, it's governments that are doing the choosing. So who's doing the shopping? And if it's governments that ultimately choose, how does that influence? Do interest groups have a particular um, preference over the venue that's being chosen? The second point is more empirical in nature, and I thank Irfan uh, for making the point earlier. Um, this is why I turned around to him, shaming him. Um, I know we think alike because uh, I noticed the, um, the negative coefficient on contributions as well. And I think it's interesting because what, and, and your answer speaks in part to this, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about it. Um, in, in one way to interpret it is that um, in your first analysis, you find that WTO adjudication um, I'm sorry, that contributions make WTO adjudication more likely and that, um, let's see, but in your second analysis in which the DV is progress, the dependent variable is progress, uh, to resolve a trade complaint you find that uh, dispute somewhat is positively correlated with progress, but contributions are negatively correlated with progress. And this leads one to question why an interest group would expend valuable resources if it made progress towards resolving trade disputes less likely. And I understand that there are some interactive effects going on there, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And then um, my final thought um, deals with the question of generalizability. In your paper, you acknowledge that it is about forum choice and U.S. trade policy, but I'm in U.S. trade policy, but I'm curious about what this can tell us about forum choice by other countries. Forum choice for the United States is far less constrained than for other countries. Uh, poor developing nations um, are going to have many of those paths closed to them. You were talking about how costly WTO adjudication is. Um, and then when you think about negotiations or bilateral negotiations, developing countries don't have that ability to make side payments like major powers do. So um, I think this, this is an opportunity really to open up the paper to more hypotheses about or perhaps implications about developing countries and how other countries might uh, think about this process because uh, would they look at um, more multilateral forums or regional forums and where, where would they go um, is the question that um, I want to I guess I want to leave this with that how, how do we take this idea of um, 
forum shopping to, to other countries. If you can't shop at Whole Foods, you have to shop at Ulta, right? So, <laughs> um, and then I just, um, I had one more smaller point, but I can save that. I want to let other people ask their questions, but I really enjoyed the paper, and I think it it's, makes some really important points. So, thank you. Great. Thanks a lot, Autumn. Um, should we open it up to I general think so. questions and then, and then I'll respond. Come back to some of Autumn's points. Right. So why don't we just go ahead and open it up and I'll just let you uh, um, call on people. Okay, right. Right, the data is about U.S. efforts to gain market access, and so I'm unable to test for other countries. I do make the argument that it should be, unless one thinks that the U.S. power is more important in the WTO than outside of the WTO. You see, I think that the power asymmetry actually goes the opposite direction. The U.S. power is such that the U.S. can get outcomes in a non-WTO setting that other countries could not. And so I'm interested in the differential. For any country, how much improvement in outcomes do they get from doing adjudication versus negotiation? The United States gets a pretty good outcome for negotiation, slightly better if they do adjudication. And I would bet if it's a small country, their negotiation options are zero. <laughs> and so then the improvement they gain from adjudication is even greater. Even if you accepted the premise that looking at comparing U.S. outcomes in WTO adjudication <laughs> to Peru's outcomes in WTO adjudication, the U.S. gets a better result than Peru. So that's a different question. If you're saying, within the set of all WTO cases, who gets better outcomes? Mark Bush has answered it, saying that rich countries get better outcomes. It's not through biased rulings. They just say that you know, they're better at negotiating and all that stuff. But that's a different question. That's saying, given a WTO dispute, who's got a better outcome? And I'm interested in how much difference does the forum make? And so given the United States, we get better outcomes in adjudication. And I am pretty confident that if I were able to take this to a developing country, I would actually have stronger results. I've done a paired case study where I looked at um, Peru and Vietnam who had almost identical trade barriers. Peru against the EU on fish labeling and Vietnam against the U.S. on fish labeling. Same bilateral agreement text, but for Peru, they use the WTO adjudication and they get a great result. 
Vietnam, they weren't a WTO member, they can't do anything and they get nothing. And I use that sort of paired comparison to try and illustrate that it's the institutional mechanism that helps to increase, even if you were to control for a certain power asymmetry. Right. Whenever I talk to the lawyers, they say it's case by case. <laughs> um, I have a quick question. Does past disputes settled by the WTO indicate what will be brought before the WTO education in the future? So, you know, hey, look, Brazil and Canada are fighting over these, these aircraft subsidies. You know, the result is really going Canada's way. Why don't we take the why, – why doesn't Boeing – Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. Um, there are some repeat cases like that, and you can argue that on the one hand, when there's a past precedent, um, you know you've got a pretty strong legal case, and so it's sort of picking an easy win. Um, and so Japan has done that a few times where there was, you know, India had won a case against Europe on a particular anti-dumping policy, and Japan filed on almost the same issue against the U.S. And so you can see that kind of, it lowers the cost because it increases your uncertainty about, your, it increases your, your certainty about the legal ruling. Um, so there's a little dynamic of that. It's not as frequent. I mean, there is a logic of precedent. It's not institutionally mandated. It's an informal precedent. And so there's sort of a tension between this idea that, you know, if it's already been ruled on, supposedly countries are going out and changing their policies to comply. Okay. Um, why do industries go through the U.S. government to try to get things done? Why don't they just go lobby the foreign government to start out? So there's a trade barrier, say, in Japan. Why not just go and spend a lot of money in Japan to lower the trade barrier? Why even bother going through the U.S. government? It seems like it's costly. It takes time. Why not just do that? Right, and some do. Okay. Yes. Um, like, I have another paper that looks at a similar data set for Japan. Actually, following your question, I can't look at developing countries, but I have a sa the same data set for Japan's efforts with other countries. And when I interviewed with the Japanese companies, a lot of them were like, we'll just go and talk to the government to try and work out a solution. Um, and so I think some of those no-mention cases, that may be what is being done. Um, Right. And how does this um, differ from countries that are not less pluralist in the U.S.? These industry groups influence, of course, will differ in countries that are more corporatist or less based on competition of interest groups or government influence. So this is, I guess, the, the manner in which domestic policy influence forms choice. Right. Right. I think that's, it's really interesting. Political contributions works more effectively for the United States. Both um, theories about how U.S. politics works 
say that this connects well, and there are a lot of studies about the influence of money in U.S. politics. There's also data. So I can't do a similar test for other countries because there are very few that provide public data on public contributions. So I am, and also I think you're right that even if I had contributions data, some countries would be, their interest group organization would be different. And I am trying to look at a way to measure political influence. And so a more refined cross-national study would want to get at what provides influence across these settings. Right. And in, in the book project where I am looking at a broader cross-national argument, I do bring in the institutional context as a way in how it filters interest group aggregation. And so when you have more checks and balances, you're more likely to have the interest groups being strongly represented and a lot of pressure on the government to be accountable, and that that is what's pushing towards the more visible form of signaling of adjudication. And so that's where I use these cross-national measures of checks and balances that take into account structure as well as partisan division. Um, but it's not as good as what I would like if I were to do case studies of every country and really get at the interest group structure. Right. I think that is a very important point. And I am, we were talking about this earlier, I am assuming this is a WTO world where Section 301 unilateral retaliation without a WTO ruling is not part of our trade playbook. And so that there is not, your, your premise is that we have the cheap WTO versus using sanctions in a bilateral setting. And I'm saying that that's really not the case, that countries aren't able to use unilateral retaliation. Although the WTO is what makes it so they can't. Yeah, so it becomes in Dutch. Yeah. Right. Right. 
so that they're able to get better implementation through the WTO rather than from the bilateral. Potentially less costly. Right, right. Hmm. May I have to this? I'm going to be question. I think you need to control for the outcome. There are four possibilities. Negotiation with positive outcome, negotiation with negative outcome, adjudication with positive outcome, adjudication with negative outcome. Right, to some extent... Because his assumption is that you get positive. You get positive outcome. So what would it take to get a positive outcome? But his assumption is that you can get a positive outcome through negotiation, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Now, your argument is that they don't care about the ad whether the outcome will be positive or negative. They're just putting up a show. Right? That's the first part of the paper. Right? So... Um, and I don't know, that would be my next question. I would speak to the second part. Right. Uh, right, but I, generally, that's one reason in the test of getting outcomes, I want to take the set of negotiated cases because I am assuming that generally WTO adjudication follows upon a negotiation failure. And so you're saying that then it was just, it was too high cost. Yeah, they didn't try they didn't try very hard negotiation because they knew that it would be too hard. I mean, they couldn't try hard. It would be too costly. So mm. the best is to go education. Right. So they're taking it as the cheap route after having failed in the bilateral negotiation? So then why in the world would you do that for your more influential industries? So you're saying that we... Because negotiation failure then they're going to the WTO and getting a better outcome. And so it's hard to explain the choice of using this for the better, most important industries. It could be that going to the WTO, the cost of that, are enough to send the cost of signal. Right. But it still may be, sort of, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most costly of the possible negotiations. Right. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I need to think about that more. Well, then is very much the, the premise of the argument is that the USTR comes back from its initial talks with a mediocre outcome. And if they could credibly sh tell the industry, this is the best you're going to get, let's take it, it would end there. And that the problem is industry doesn't know if the USTR sold them out or if that was the best they could get because the industry isn't able to observe. The, there's imperfect information about government preferences and what the trade partner has done. And so it is this issue of how do you sell a mediocre outcome? And that that leads to the need to show you're taking more effort. Um, but your argument would be that you should just continue and go through another round of more costly bilateral implementation enforcement. That there would be these other options to take to bring a result? Yeah. But there is something about adjudication that is different from negotiation. Apparently adjudication, even if it out negative, it closes the, the, the issue. It terminates. Right. Whereas negotiation, it never ends. Right. You can. We didn't try it out. We didn't try it out. You know, right. Other, right. Right. And so somehow that asymmetry yeah. could work either way. See, right. You're right. making it work in the sense that negotiations don't work, and so 
and uh, so they go, they're going to go to education, and it's costlier. It's an escalation, yeah. right? Yeah. But it could be actually that, uh, anyway, it could be right. the other way, right? Yeah. Uh, negotiation being so costly, we'd rather right. go for education. And okay. the industry knows it. They take a gamble when they go to education. If they keep in negotiations, they, could have, they can keep pushing for 10 years. Hmm. If they go to education and it fails, it's over. So it's not that clear that the industry really wants adjudication. In fact, yes. I would argue that right. a very powerful industry would never go adjudication. Right. Especially if it has a bad thing. He would go negotiation. Right. Right. No, and you're right that I don't think that it's industries coming out with a preference saying we want adjudication for adjudication's sake. They'd rather get a good solution quickly, effectively, in another venue. Right, right, right. Better answer than I could give. Um, well, that's, that was your answer, but uh, for some reason I felt compelled to repeat it. Um, <laughs> that, so this is actually related to a question I had, which is that, so filing a complaint at the WTO, which is when it gets coded as adjudication freedom, filing a complaint could obviously be part of a negotiation strategy. Yes. Right? That you're negotiating, you file a complaint to sort of demonstrate resolve to the other side or something. So actually yeah. the same cost that you, you're talking about a domestic context Right. So I, I guess that made me a little bit uncomfortable in terms of coding those cases as cost of litigation, especially given that in many cases it's probably part of a negotiation strategy. So it gets even more difficult to separate the, the adjudication cases from the um, negotiation cases, both because they're mixed up and because you haven't paid the cost yet right up front. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a good point that there is back and forth and we have plenty of examples. I mean, Brazil files against U.S. agricultural subsidies as an adjudication case in order to try and push the U.S. to be more forthcoming on subsidies negotiations in the Doha round. So there's explicit strategy making between litigation and negotiation. And I think, you know, that's something I want to discuss more. I don't know how I'm going to be able to work with it in the data. I need to be more sensitive 
to that in some ways if I were to look at the dynamic dispute instead of treating it as a single unit, but look at the progression, which I'll be able to do in the case studies, um, and look at the negotiation that's going alongside adjudication. I think that there are upfront costs to filing, and that is important to make this a signaling argument, that even if you don't pursue it for two years of litigation, there is an upfront cost, which is the diplomatic cost of suing your trade partner, the risk of losing um, if you actually do go forward. Of course, you can settle early, but I think that if you've told your industry you're filing, then it's harder to back down and take an early settlement if the other side hasn't given you some kind of concession. You know, so I think if you were going to, if you were going to back down without any trade partner concession, it would be much better to do so before filing. That once you filed, then you have some audience cost to backing down with no reform. Um, and there is usually legal briefs prepared before filing. And your point about opportunity cost, I think, is really important because you can't just be filing cases left and right, so they're pretty selective. And as soon as you file a case for one industry, the other industry is saying, "Hey, what about me?" So you're making that cost of political choice to, to file. So. Right. That should really militate against taking a weak case forward because I think one of the costs should be a reputational cost. Right. right. Just going to get to Justin's. Uh, question. I mean, so there's a number of different ways in which to think about right. what there is a track record. <laughs> yes. And so if a country develops yes. a reputation for taking crappy cases all the time, right. right? I can't imagine that's a good thing for that country. Right? So, right. Uh, so what is interesting, I mean, to the extent that you have some proxies for legal strength of the case that import policies, that I think would be kind of fun for you to really dig in a little deeper. Mm. Because you, you, you should expect that the import policy cases are more likely to be taken forward, right? So you and they are. Clear, exactly. So that is, you can do something to kind of answer some of these concerns as to what are they trying to do over here. So I, I guess I'm just having a hard time believing that right. they just go forward as we're signaling the industry that they care about it, right? As opposed to the other ways in which you could contract around it, right? I mean, Marcus's point about subsidies or whatever else, right? I mean, something other than going to an I think you're absolutely right that they don't want to lose. Right. There are high stakes to losing for your reputation, and if you actually lose, then it tells all the countries that that is now an okay policy. Right. So it's worse than the status quo before. So they don't want to lose. That's why there's an 80% win rate in WTO adjudication. All governments are very risk-averse, and they don't go forward unless they have a pretty decent legal case. So it really is a shocker when you get something like the Kodak, where they go forward on a risky case. And I would say that the Section 301 process is what ties USTR hands sufficiently that they will go forward against their own better insights. Um, but my argument is that there are hundreds or thousands of potential violations. And so having a decent legal case is... Nece almost necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. And so, you know, when I talk to Ambassador Algeyer, who's the USTR in G Geneva, and ask him, okay, what are your criterion for WTO cases? He's going to say, he tells me, they have to have an economic interest, an industry that cares, there has to be a legal case, and political influence can be a factor. We get calls from Congress. And so I'm not saying this is the only thing that matters. In fact, I'm sort of saying that, of course, a legal criterion exists. 
an economic interest. I think it's unusual that we did file the bananas case when we had no economic interest. So I shouldn't say that economic interest is quite obvious, but generally speaking, I take it as straightforward that some size of economic interest motivates cases. But what's interesting is that at the margin, you're seeing a pretty big influence for politics. And that that is leading to a more uh, difficult selection criterion, I would argue, than if it were just about choosing the likely wins, looking at the law and trade partner resistance. Mm. I, I don't quite understand. I mean, I understand the, the argument, but I think there are two papers into one, and I don't see how they fit together. The first part of the paper argues that make a signaling argument. Um, basically, adjudication is given to the to those to those who pay the taxes. Right. The second part, uh, the second part says actually adjudication works. So then my question is, it's not signaling them. They're just buying a mechanism that works. It's a private good, and of course it's given to the highest bidder, the biggest company. So if the two arguments are together, signaling has to go. I don't see how it fits there. Uh, I know. You're right. I'd almost hoped, for, this is one of those cases I was hoping for an insignificant coefficient, even though I like to think the WTO matters. But <laughs> I think you're right. The, the signaling argument would be much stronger if I had a perverse negative outcome. And, you know, I could run in circles and say my measure of progress isn't capturing all the costs and that if you were to discount for the amount of time, et cetera. But I would almost be arguing against myself. Um. Then separate the two papers. <laughs> 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 so write the signaling paper with the implication that we have bad outcomes. Well, we could have been the big case, you know, well, this case, right? And, then, and you don't right. see an outlier, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the business longer. Yeah. And then I'll write my effectiveness paper about how the WTO works. And one last point. Why don't you, in that table one, to go back to the prior point, why don't you control for the outcome of the, either the negotiation or the adjudication, whether it was positive or negative? Adjudication. You mean in the first regressions on selection? Model one, yeah. So that would be a post-treatment variable, though, because if I'm looking at the decision about how to negotiate, the outcome is occurring later. And so when you're running a regression, you don't want to control for the outcome. If you, if you include something that is after treatment, you don't know which effect you're measuring, because you, ha you have the treatment and you have this other variable that is... I think what you're getting at, and actually I have thought about this, is that in the forum choice, to some extent, I could look at the negotiation subset. And so take out those no negotiation cases and just look at those where there's negotiation or adjudication. And then say, all adjudication cases are built on some failed negotiation. Yeah, okay, there's that complication, but that's not what I had in mind. What I had in mind is that we are comparing apple and oranges here. Again, it's the part one and right. part two of the paper. Right. Understand? Um, you could have a regression with assuming that cases work, both negotiation and uh, adjudication work. And then the question is, who gets who gets to, who gets the adjudication? Which which business gets the adjudication? Right. 
So throw in for the fact that it is actually it's going to work. And then we could have another another regression says it doesn't work. Most of the time it doesn't work. Who is getting the adjudication? No, because it seems to me the outcome is key here. Because if you believe it's going to work, so you get the same result in both cases. Contributions are going to get what works best. And if working is not important to them, and if they're willing to settle for the showmanship, they'll get the show. The, you know, it's always money that's going to buy either one. Right? Mm. But the problem is that the two outcomes are very different. One is a signaling, one is a, you know, it, is what is a theory about how the Congress defends itself against lobbyists. Okay. It goes back to the 19th century, when the Congress was totally assailed by lobbying, had problems to pass its, its, its uh, tariff laws. You know, since 1934, Congress has become able to defend itself, right? And it's no longer swamped by lobbyists and all that. So this is part of it. This is the first story, right? Right. Basically, how to protect Congress from those greedy, pushy, and, and, and wealthy lobbyists. The second story has to do what works best, what is efficient. How to, here's an auction, right? Here's a piece of a copy. Uh, I'm going to auction it to the highest bid. Right. This is what the second, the second part is about. Uh, it works, right? Uh -huh. And so, of course, I'm not going to give it, and, and, and I can only file seven cases a, a, year, a year, right? right? So the seven highest bidder will get it. Right. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, all we know here is um, whether the WTO case They are. In, in the effectiveness analysis, I'm comparing negotiation cases with adjudication cases and saying that the adjudication did bring a better result. And so you're right that then we just say they're going to the higher bidder. Well, I don't know who's right. I don't know if it is Christina's first part of the paper or, or Christina's second part of the paper. Uh, to me, they don't work together. Right. I've been thinking about whether to split it. And this may be the last nail that splits the paper. Um, in which case, you all have to promise not to tell anyone about this version of the draft. And I hope no one reads the two separate versions. As long as they're not read conjointly. Yes. So this is asking you to step away from it a little bit. Yeah. Right. So for some reason, no one's using the NAFTA dispute settlement right. mechanism. Right. Um, and it just occurred to me that your argument must have implications for why the WTO is so much more appealing to NAFTA for the U.S., Canada, Mexico. There are a few reasons. Actually, Mark has a good article about the precedent value. And so basically, you get more from a WTO victory than a NAFTA victory because then you get a precedent with all trading partners. The other is an institutional mechanism that in NAFTA, the respondent is empowered with more blocking power than the WTO. So the stronger the trade partner's resistance, the more likely it goes to the WTO. In NAFTA, they can block a dispute by denying appointment of a panel. Um, right. Right, NAFTA still suffers from some blocking problems. But in terms of the politics, yeah, to try and think by showing we're willing to go to the WTO instead of going to NAFTA. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder what, what the effect, especially if it is just show. I 
I mean, that could be really interesting, because if part of your story is pushed out to paper, that the government just needs to demonstrate to industry that it's willing to do something, and that mm. sort of appeases industry or releases some of this domestic pressure, mm. um, then you think, then would NAFTA be just as effective as the WTO? Um, but maybe industry is, is perfectly aware that NAFTA isn't a very effective form, because it can be blocked. Right. So I guess it seems to me that your, your argument has implications for this, and that you might actually be able to say something okay. about it. Okay, yeah, I think you're right. And if I set it up as a forum choice paper, I should discuss more. Different forms. Yeah. And I take your point about the Bush, Bush article on that, but of course, you don't always want to establish a broader precedent, right? So, I mean, it seems to me Bush's point isn't you always want to establish a broader precedent. That would just predict that you always go to the WTO. But it just seems like sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And yet, we still get almost no cases in NAFTA. Right. So, right. Yeah, I think you're right. That's something I should look into. Autumn. Hi. Um, thinking off the cuff here, uh, going back to the point about being able to separate the negotiations and uh, WTO adjudication, because as you were saying, usually they start out as negotiations anyways because the WTO encourages right. negotiated um, settlement if, if states can get to that, that uh, without submitting a case. And I think there might be off the cuff a methodological way to deal with it. Um, if you, because you control for duration anyways, mm -hmm. you, you might be able to put in an event history analysis in which the failure would be a WTO uh, case. Right. And any negotiation that didn't end up as, as a failure or being adjudicated would be censored. So that says that any case has the possibility of going to WTO adjudication, which I think is a really nice theoretical, you know, even though it's methodological, it opens it up theoretically because that, that is the claim I think you want to make is that either of these are entirely possible. Why do some go adjudication and some negotiation or stay in negotiation is a better way of putting it and I think uh, event history would get at that staying to you know right. adjudication I'm not sure you know I'm not sure but just off the top right right no that would be possible it's to, instead of treating it as a single unit look at the duration of the dispute and put in a, a hazard model for when how long does the dispute continue until it turns WTO. Right, right. Uh, then the assumption would be that as soon as it appears in the National Trade Estimates Report, you're essentially initiating a negotiation. Right. Just by virtue of publishing it in there, you're effectively initiating a negotiation. Right, which I would be comfortable yeah, with. Some of those barriers are garbage put in there because an industry sent a letter and you have to put something in, but still. <laughs> It's a little threshold that some foreign embassy person is going to read that and be annoyed and maybe call up. And so, yes, to think of that as the start of a negotiation. Right. This is looking at the escalation. Um, and the only revisit the data set another four years. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So I mean that uh, the data is 
it was originally coded in that way, and then I had to, I shifted to the cross section because I felt that some of the time dynamic, the measurements were. It's, I just didn't really feel that the year-to-year change in production level would be expected to, to correlate with the shift. I was much more interested in the difference between the potato nematode case and the Kodak Fujifilm case than looking at the potato nematode case in 1995 and 1996. And so that was my decision was that really that the overtime variation and why has the nematode case never escalated to WTO, whereas the Apple one did. Yeah, but I think, you know, more information is always better. And so putting in the time series dynamic would add in more information, and then maybe even theoretically thinking of it as an escalation would be better than thinking of it as a one-shot choice. Because I think you're right when you commented also about forum shopping concept needs clarification, and there are multiple strategies. And so some of these cases are going into different strategies along the way. And so that could be captured more richly in that kind of structure. Let's see what we still have. Two cases and, okay, one report that one way for negotiation to end is to be escalated to adjudication. But do cases end as negotiation? And do you have, yes. Can we tell this is 1995, this case is over? Yes. Well, then in that case, you need to use the, you know, what Stephen Smyer teaches. What is that? The, the historic, uh, what is it? Event history. Huh? Event history. Event history. It's an event history model. And the question is, absolutely, this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. The question is, when, when does a negotiation uh, move into uh, adjudication, when does it drop out of the data set, and when does it still go on forever? Because this is exactly what that controls for, all these right. things, which is problematic in the story. No, no, because you don't control for that. Right. Some of your negotiations are still ongoing, but they could actually turn adjudication. Right. You've got them negotiation. Right. That's problematic. In the next couple of years, they may turn That's to adjudication. Right, it's censored at the top. In fact, you should have eliminated all negotiations that are still ongoing. They should be in the data set by that, by that uh, principle, right? However, using uh, a history, this method allows you to keep everything in. Hmm. A good suggestion. Yeah. Well, it's after five, so why don't we release the <laughs> formal duties? Well, thank you. The, the really good feedback. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you for your comments, Autumn. It's very helpful to discuss it.